I'd like to acknowledge the traditional caretakers and inhabitants of this land across Australia. Also locally where I stand, the Beerpai people, who continue their cultural practices, wisdom and law. Hi and welcome to the Pollination Mamas podcast, where we have collaborative conversations, cross-pollinate and connect, as we span our wings across topics such as feminine wisdom, womb wisdom, herbal plant medicine, natural fertility awareness, postpartum care, sacred sisterhood, sacred motherhood, women's circles and deep connectedness. If you're here, I believe you too are on a journey to reclaim and revitalise ancient feminine wisdom in a modern context. Not only for ourselves now, but for future generations to come. Thank you so much for being here. Hi everyone and welcome to another Pollination Mamas podcast. I have woken up at 5am, which for anyone that knows me is something that I don't do if I don't have to very often, but the fact that I have is testament to the guest that I've got here who has had a huge influence in um, my life in the last six months or so. And I'm really excited to have her here and share her work and her message and her book with um, Australia and maybe anyone else in the world listening. So I've got Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. She's a certified fertility awareness educator. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast with almost 250 episodes. It's jam-packed with truly informative and empowering information on all things fertility awareness. Lisa is the author of recently released book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility. She's been working with women in fertility awareness for almost 20 years. Lisa truly is a wealth of knowledge and passionate about educating women and the community about the importance and the myths of fertility awareness. So thanks so much for being here. Um, Thank you for having me. Lisa, I discovered you about six months ago now after studying with the steamy chick. So I'm a postpartum doula and I started, started studying with a steamy chick to become more educated about vaginal steaming for women um, from all backgrounds, not just postpartum because I had lots of people asking. And also my period returned after my youngest turned one. And so I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts and still have a lot of catching up to do because there's so many, it's so jam-packed. But it's remained one of my favourites for at least six months or more and alongside MAGA Mamas and you are as I said before we started you're part of the inspiration for me starting a podcast so I thought I'd just give you a little shout out on the podcast. Thank Um, you that's amazing that's incredible. So I would love to start as I said you've been doing this work for so long and it really feels like the culmination of this work and all your knowledge and experience really working with women has culminated in your book The Fifth Vital Sign now after doing this work for almost 20 years so i think that would be a good place to start if you could just explain a little bit about what the fifth vital sign actually is and break down that term mm-hmm. well the the idea that the menstrual cycle is like a vital sign has been around for a really long time and art so I had the good fortune of discovering fertility awareness and learning to chart amongst certified fertility awareness educators. And um, for me, I, I discovered the connection between my menstrual cycle and my overall health really early on in my own journey. So um, when I first discovered fertility awareness, 
I remember feeling really liberated that the cycle doesn't always have to be 28 days because my cycle was 45 days <laughs> and I thought, Oh great. You know, I'm unique or whatever. And so then my charting instructor pointed out to me that she was like, Oh no, no. She's like, your cycle is way too long. That's not normal. And your temperatures are way too low. I think you should get your thyroid screened. So for me at the very onset of my journey, I discovered, wow, you know, if your cycle is off, then it, it is an indication of something, um, that's, that's awry. And so that has been a central piece of my experience charting my own cycles, but also fundamentally throughout my journey, teaching other women to chart their cycles. And um, so a vital sign basically is um, the, the most commonly used vital signs that we're more familiar with would be say our body temperature, our heart rate, our respiration rate, and our blood pressure. And if you think about those vital signs, we have a very clear sense. So there's a normal established range. If you were to go to your doctor and your doctor were to check your vitals, then if something was off, so if your temperature was really high, that's an obvious one. Not only does it tell your doctor that there's something wrong, but it also gives kind of a roadmap because if your temperature is really high, there's a few specific reasons why that usually is. So it gives your doctor information about that there's something wrong, but where to look for the problem. And your menstrual cycle is the same way. And so for example, we often think of our menstrual cycle as just the period, but your menstrual cycle starts the first day of your true flow and it ends the day before your next one. And in between your period, um, you know, you would approach ovulation, you'd expect to produce cervical mucus as you approach ovulation because cervical mucus is essential for conception and that's what indicates you're in your fertile window. Uh, then you would ovulate and a healthy cycle ovulation has to take place. Um, and then after ovulation, you would have about two weeks before your period comes again. And so when your cycle falls outside of a well-established normal set of parameters, just like any of the other vital signs, it's a sign of an underlying issue. And there's several really great examples of that. So in my case, I had an issue with my thyroid. <laughs> and um, so once I was able to address that and address a lot of the lifestyle factors, get on medication that I needed to get on, thyroid replacement hormone, um, it was identified so early because the issues in my menstrual cycle is like almost at a subclinical level. In, in many ways, your menstrual cycle is sensitive and you can pick up on a lot of things a lot sooner before it turns into a full-blown problem, you know, five, 10 years later. And um, so thyroid issues are one of the common reasons for menstrual cycle disruptions, where whether it's, um, you know, cycles are a little bit more regular or you're having issues with bleeding at different times of your cycle or, or something like that. Um, but other examples would be um, hypothalamic amenorrhea. So that's more of a drastic example. But um, to illustrate that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign, it's helpful to think of well, what happens when a young woman of reproductive age stops menstruating. And so hypothalamic amenorrhea, the, the reasons that a woman stops having her period, so basically stops ovulating and then therefore stops menstruating, um, it's related to typically a combination of overexercise, undereating, and stress. So those are kind of like the three hallmark signs that would stop a woman from menstruating altogether. So it, you could look at it like an energy deficiency or like just way too much stress happening or a combination of those things. And what happens is that your body, so the athlete, you know, we think of like an Olympic athlete or something like that. That's probably the most 
common like you don't have to be an Olympic athlete to lose your period but I feel like that that example everyone's like oh, yeah I've heard of that and uh, so if you think about that what your body is doing you're not losing your period because your body's broken your 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 body consciously stopped you from ovulating to try to conserve energy uh, because in this situation basically if you're over exercising under eating and or overly stressed or a combination, um, your body is actively trying to protect you from the additional stress of what a pregnancy would cause. And so this condition is characterized by like the communication between your hypothalamus, pituitary gland and ovaries is stopped, but it's because your body's actually smarter than you <laughs> and is trying to protect you. And so what happens then when a woman stops menstruating, her risk of, um, well, first of all, she starts rapidly losing bone mass. So women who lose their periods become, uh, especially the longer that it lasts, are at a greater risk of developing osteoporosis later in life. And so losing your period from that sense is a really significant issue it's a huge flag. It's like your house is on fire. This is the example I use in the book. It's like your house is on fire. Um, your period is the alarm. Like the period stopping is the alarm. Um, and then your house is on fire. And so if we don't pay attention to it, which is what often happens, like, oh, just go on the pill and, you know, you'll get a bleed every month. Uh, so that's like uh, taking the batteries out of the fire alarm. <laughs> and you're just hanging out while your house is on fire. So Hopefully that helps to illustrate how important our menstrual cycles are because our menstrual cycles are connected to our health in a very specific way. You wouldn't necessarily think unless you knew that your menstrual cycle is connected to your bone health, but our menstrual cycle is how we produce hormones. It's how we produce our natural estrogen. And then after ovulation, it's how we produce our natural progesterone. progesterone. And those hormones, we have receptors for those hormones all over our bodies from our breasts to our bones to our brains to it's not it, it's not like the hormones just stay in the uterus i think it's so funny when it's like you think the hormones just stay in there no no, no. we have circulatory system they go everywhere um so so yeah so then if you think about the menstrual cycle as a vital sign you think about it as connected to a woman's overall health then you can recognize how um how important it is and for the record, whether a woman, like whether you're actively trying to get pregnant or not, so even if you're, even if you never want kids in your entire life, your menstrual cycle is a sign of health. Um, having healthy, normal menstrual cycles that fall within the normal range, having fertility in general, the concept like being fertile is a sign of, of overall health. Yeah, absolutely. You make such a good point there. It really is important for everyone, whether you don't want kids now or you don't ever want children or you're not sure it's such an important factor for people to be aware that it is an indicator so your fertility is like a barometer or um, some sort of measurement tool to tell you where you're at and I would love to see GPs health professionals that would have to be one of the things that they ask if you're female and of fertility age or even not they could ask your history if you've already entered menopause to get an idea of where you're at but also most people have a thermometer in their house now to test their their temperature if they've got a fever and it's the same thing when you're talking about charting and being aware of your cycle is that you just it's a nice easy simple way to keep an idea and a track of where your health's at so that leads into uh, fertility awareness method which is often referred to as FAM for people that haven't heard of it. 
Um, and I thought we'd just do a quick little fam 101. I, I thought we won't spend too much time on it because some people might know about it. But for people who don't, or for people who are still associating it with the rhythm method, so we can just break <laughs> down the difference of how it's not the rhythm method, it's quite an evolution on an um, much more specific than that. In fact, people who use FAM for contraception, if it's used well, it has a 99.4% success rate. Is that right? That's right. I, that number comes from a study that was done with, so I think it's helpful to know that the women in the study were taught a specific method of charting. And so the, the symptothermal method. With fertility awareness charting, there's three main signs that we typically pay attention to, as you know. So we have cervical mucus, cervical position, and basal body temperature. So you're in the symptothermal method, you're looking at the actual symptoms. So the mucus, the cervical position, things that you're physically observing, and then you're looking at the temperature shift, which happens after ovulation. So the temperature shift helps you to confirm that you've ovulated. And so in that particular study, uh, you know, the participants were trained by specific, um, by certified fertility awareness educators in a specific method. So they are using the method correctly, which is important for any method of birth control. And when used correctly, then um, the 99.4% uh, success rate means that when used correctly, only, you know, less than one out of 100 couples per year is getting pregnant. And that puts fertility awareness with you know, as high of an efficacy rate with correct use as hormonal birth control, which is, which is really important. So the rhythm method is different because the rhythm method is based on a lot of the myths that a lot of us still hold about the menstrual cycle. And basically with the rhythm method, it's a mathematical calculation. So it's really different. You're, you know, charting a couple cycles, however many, maybe six or 12, um, and then you're doing a calculation to determine when ovulation usually happens and then you're kind of blocking off some time saying like based on my previous cycles this is my fertile window uh, instead of actually looking at your body so when you understand uh, how the menstrual cycle works you recognize how essential cervical mucus is so essentially uh, in order to understand like how to identify which days of your cycle are fertile, which days are not, you have to understand your mucus. Cervical mucus has the ability to keep sperm alive for up to five days. We produce cervical mucus as we approach ovulation. Cervical mucus changes the pH and the environment in the vagina, and it also indicates that our cervix is open. Outside of the fertile window, our cervix is actually closed and it's blocked with a thick mucus plug that prevents sperm from being able to enter. So outside of the fertile window, there's no access <laughs> to your uterus. And furthermore, there's no egg because ovulation only happens at one point in the cycle. And so it's like contrary to what we've been taught. I remember growing up, I was taught that I could get pregnant on every day. I was terrified all the time. I was convinced that if I ever had sex with another person on any day of my cycle, I would basically be pregnant like that day. <laughs> and <laughs> what it turns out that there's so technically there's only six days, a six day window, because if your mucus can keep sperm alive for up to five days, and then ovulation happens on one day, five plus one is six days. Uh, for practical purposes, it usually amounts to about a week with a bit of a buffer period. We always have to have a three day buffer period. When you're using the method for birth control, there's specific rules to follow to make sure that you're um, confirming that ovulation did happen before you're, you know, um, having unprotected sex in the post-ovulatory phase. But um, 
that it's very different because with fertility awareness, you're actually observing your body on a day-to-day basis. So you're checking for cervical mucus, you're taking your temperature to verify which days of your cycle are fertile. And so at the end of each day, you're basically asking yourself, you know, am I fertile or not today? And one of my mentors has a great analogy for it. So the rhythm method is like a weather forecast. And we all know how that goes. You know, sometimes it's like it's telling us it's going to rain and it's a beautiful day or whatever. But with the fertility awareness method, you're actually stepping outside and like figuring out if it's raining or not today. And that's why they're very, very different. And that's why the fertility awareness method has such a high efficacy rate. Whereas with the rhythm method, as the saying goes, what do you call couples that use the rhythm method? parents (laughs) I love it I love that metaphor about just stepping outside I just remembered I forgot to do my temperature (laughs) but um (laughs) my temps are all over the place because I breastfeed in the morning as I'm waking up and um but it's it's such a fantastic tool and it's so simple like so yeah there's temperature cervical mucus which is the main indicator and then there's cervix uh cervix placement as well which is sort of like the third sign and somewhat optional, but you recommend for people to do that at least for one or two or three cycles um, until they become familiar with it. And then they could use it as a confirmation if there were some other indicators they weren't sure about at the time, like the cervical mucus or temperature. Well, yeah, the cervical position is an optional sign because not every woman checks her cervix. Uh, When I'm working with clients, there are a few situations where I do recommend it just in general. So some women, especially women who've recently, sorry, I don't know where that noise came from. Um, Some women who, especially women who've recently come off of hormonal birth control will have limited mucus where they're not seeing very much. And I've worked with a few women who have, or several women, I should say, who've come off birth control and the first few cycles off birth control have no mucus. So it takes a few cycles before the mucus comes back, but they are ovulating. So any cycle where you are ovulating, you can get pregnant. If there is an egg being dropped, (laughs) pregnancy is always possible. And so um, in situations like that, where they're a little bit more complex and it's harder to read your mucus, then the cervical position can be very helpful because it does shift and change when you are approaching ovulation and it shifts and change again, uh, changes again after ovulation. Um, but the cervical position by itself, it doesn't, by itself, we can't use it. Whereas with, there are some methods of fertility awareness where you can, they suggest you use mucus only or temperature only. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's putting all the indicators. I can't, I find it very hard to reach my cervix actually. And even when I first started using a menstrual cup, I had to buy a longer one because it would, even though I wouldn't push it in very far, it would slip up and it was almost impossible to get out. So for me, that's quite hard. And that's another aspect for people to consider too is don't worry. (laughs) It's really hard for you to reach your cervix. That is a thing. But I was the same as you when I, um, first reached age of sexuality I was so worried about getting pregnant quite a few of my high school friends had so I went on the pill I was using condoms as well I was like there's nothing getting in here (laughs) but I was only on the pill for a month or maximum two because it made me quite depressed and I that did lead me to a path of looking into other options and while I didn't find fertility awareness method as such um, specifically I wish I had a had um, access to it, I did find some information that led me to uh, reading cervical mucus. And 
in a sense, I was practicing a very mild, uh, what I had access to version of that, reading the cervical mucus, writing down on my calendar, um, and then giving myself a buffer zone afterwards. So when I found FAM and it had the temps in there as well and a way to chart, I was like, oh, yes, <laughs> a way that I can be really specific about this and record it rather than just some little dots on my calendar. So I was so thankful for that. So also, um, we've covered quite a few of that. So the menstrual cycle is not just a way to prevent conception it's also a great tool for people who are trying to conceive as well who might not have your typical 28 day cycle and for some reason they if they are ovulating for some reason they're not getting pregnant and so by practicing fam they can see when they're ovulating this happened to me for my first pregnancy i was ovulating on day 17 and i didn't know and it didn't take long to fall pregnant, but once I realised that, then bam, it was so much easier. <laughs> and so I'm sure you see a lot of clients come to you with that case as well, trying to fall pregnant. Hmm. Well, I mean, again, it, it goes back to the myths that we hold around the menstrual cycle because we're not provided that much education about it. And uh, as women, we're all taught, you know, menstrual cycles, 28 days, ovulation happens on day 14. And I would say that the myth is that the goal, uh, like when you're trying to conceive, the goal is to have sex on ovulation day. And in, in many ways, it's almost like only, which is very strange. But that's because we don't have that information about the role of cervical mucus. So uh, with cervical mucus, just to kind of shift the concept a little bit, when you're using fertility awareness, the goal is to identify your fertile window. Your fertile window is when you're producing cervical mucus as you approach ovulation. And, you know, the reason for that, so to give a, an example, um, let's say you have a woman <coughs> and, you know, she starts to see cervical mucus on Monday and her partner is going on a business trip on Tuesday. So she has, sees her cervical mucus on Monday and uh, for anyone who's not familiar with cervical mucus, it can look like uh, creamy white hand lotion and it can look like um, clear, stretchy, raw egg whites. So you can pull it between your fingers and you might see a little it's like a thread. Uh, and then some women don't necessarily see a lot of the clear stretchy, uh, but when they're wiping themselves, they'll notice that at some point in their cycle, it's like they have to wipe several times before they <laughs> get dry or they're wiping and it's really, really slippery, like the hand hitting the back of the toilet. <laughs> um, so for some women, they don't necessarily have like a, enough of a quantity to be able to stretch it between their fingers, but they'll still have that sensation of like lubrication, basically. It's almost like you have a lube in your panties when you wipe yourself. And uh, so either way, this woman, my hypothetical woman, she sees her mucus on Monday and then she has sex with her partner. She's trying to conceive. He goes on his business trip, but she doesn't ovulate until Friday. And she can get pregnant because the sperm, the, the mucus keeps sperm alive for up to five days. And uh, our, um, our cervical mucus, it rapidly draws sperm into our cervical crypts. So inside of our cervix, which is the base of the uterus, which is what dilates when you have a baby. Um, it's really neat. The cervix is, it just does not get enough attention because the cervix is fascinating. Uh, but the cervix within it has all these little folds of skin and those are called the cervical crypts. And so our cervical mucus actually, that's where it's produced. But when we're in our fertile window and when we're producing this mucus, it actually draws in the sperm when you have unprotected sex and filters them into our cervical crypts where it holds them. It's like a little hotel. 
And then around, the, as we approach ovulation, our, you know, the sperm are actually released into the uterus and fallopian. So it sounds like it's like a movie or something. It's like, like a, a sci-fi movie, movie. yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> the wormhole and yeah. holds them into the crypts. And I love it. Fantastic. Well, in the book, I have an entire chapter on cervical mucus. Yeah. And I could totally see someone be like, how could you have that much to say about it? <laughs> But there's a lot to say. Um, the cervical mucus is so fascinating that the, the real question is, why don't most medical textbooks contain a detailed chapter of cervical mucus? Because this is, um, this is a very interesting field. There, you know, a scientist, Dr. Eric Oldblad, spent like 30, 40, 50 years studying mucus, um, you know, under a microscope and identifying all the different qualities and traits, which are fascinating. And uh, so this is the level of complexity that is available and is not actually taught to doctors in medical school. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, so the point is that one of the biggest myths about just trying to conceive in general and, and fertility is that really, you know, you can only get pregnant on that one day and you have to try to figure out which day ovulation is and have sex on that day. For women who are trying to get pregnant, understanding how your body works, understanding the role of cervical mucus helps you to recognize that the primary sign to pay attention to when you're trying to get pregnant is when you're making mucus. So when you see it, have sex. It's like literally that yeah, simple. You've got the lube. Uh, it's natural yeah. lube. <laughs> and, time. and the challenge is that, uh, you know, given that we're taught that the menstrual cycle is 28 days and the ovulation happens on day 14, a lot of us really expect it. And so if you, um, I've spoken to women who say they start to see mucus like on day six of their cycle and they think, oh, that's impossible. <laughs> I never ovulate this early, but you can. And other women who um, don't see mucus until day 21 or 22, but had sex on day 14 and stopped. So uh, what's really important is to shift the conversation so that we start to get a deeper understanding of what the menstrual cycle really looks like. So FYI, we're not robots. <laughs> uh, women are different and our cycles are always responding to our overall health. So the concept of the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. If you are going on a vacation, if you have a stressful event happening in your life, if you have a food sensitivity and you're constantly eating the food that you're sensitive to, you know, your body perceives stress differently. So not every stress is you know, get someone yelling at you in traffic. <laughs> um, but those types of things, if they happen before ovulation in the menstrual cycle, can delay ovulation. Every woman at some point in her life is going to ovulate a little early one cycle, ovulate a little later. And so just by having that understanding of your cycle, it helps you to time sex accurately based on your actual cycle, as opposed to some generalized fictional model of the menstrual cycle that isn't real. Yeah, so important. And it comes back to body literacy. Why aren't we taught this as women? And for anyone listening out there, the chapter on cervical mucus is well worth the read. The whole book's well worth the read. But um, don't worry, it doesn't get boring at any point. It just gets more interesting. And because it is one of the major signs to read for fam, it's important to know the ins and outs. And after reading that chapter, I just felt like I'd sort of just touched the surface, that there was so much more. And as you say, it's about your individual body getting to know your own cervical mucus and what your norm is um, and how that might change over time. So also, and we sort of touched on this, the menstrual cycle, it, whether you um, are having sex or not, so you might not be partnered um, or you might not want to have children, as we mentioned. Um, so you're not using it for conception or contraception. But it's an important diagnostic tool for health, as we touched on in the beginning. 
And a lot of people, I think, come to FAM, Fertility Awareness Method, for one of the above mentioned reason, contraception conception, and then discover other health issues as you did. Or mm. they might be having quite noticeable issues and they want to work out some more signs and some more indicators. So can you tell us a little bit more about how it can be used as a diagnostic indicator and what some of the main health issues are that you see that you can get an indication of? Of course, you're not going to diagnose, but you might get an indication of through looking at someone's chart. Mm-hmm. Well, I, it, it's really it's really interesting to see because basically in many ways, you know, if you have some sort of health issue, it will show up in your chart in one way or the other. So there's a few specific things that might seem a little bit more obvious. So if you're charting and paying attention to your cervical mucus, one of the great things about charting is that it allows you to get a sense of what is normal for you. And so just to put it out there, in a normal healthy cycle, you would expect to have cervical mucus for say two to seven days uh, before ovulation. So uh, from a very practical standpoint, if a woman, you know, develops a yeast overgrowth, so she's got a yeast infection or bacterial vaginosis, uh, and all of a sudden she starts to see like some sort of white discharge, my favorite word, every day, that she can have that knowledge, that body literacy, you know, this is my normal, and all of a sudden now I'm outside of my normal. And she can have that immediate heads up. Uh, at a very subtle level, uh, because sometimes a woman may have a really subtle level of yeast overgrowth or bacterial vaginosis or something before she's itchy. <laughs> uh, so having the ability to, to look at that or um, for mucus being off-colored, some women will have mucus that is yellow, and that might be the only sign that there might be some sort of infection that she needs to take care of. And it can be even more, um, so to stick with the cervical mucus example, it can even be more serious, where for many women, um, by monitoring the changes in their cervical patterns, cervical mucus patterns, they might get that early uh, detection of potential abnormal cervical cells. Uh, Because having abnormal cervical cells, cervical dysplasia, shows up in the menstrual cycle chart in this kind of wet, watery discharge that's different to cervical mucus. And so that's like quite specific to, you know, reproductive health, but that already gives you like, wow, I could get all this information just by paying attention to my mucus and seeing what's normal for me. Um, so other health conditions, we mentioned thyroid disorders, we mentioned hypothalamic amenorrhea, uh, women who have polycystic ovary syndrome, which is um, essentially like a metabolic condition characterized by, uh, you know, insulin resistance, increased androgen production. Um, a woman who has PCOS has a lifetime increased risk of developing um, diabetes later on in life. So uh, it's really what happens uh, in the menstrual cycle uh, typically is PCOS is characterized often by long irregular cycles. So, you know, women who are ovulating a lot less frequently, maybe their cycles are closer to 40 days, 45 days, or uh, maybe having fewer than nine or eight periods in a year type of thing. And some of the women will have cysts on their ovaries, though not all. Uh, But uh, again, you know, in that, in those cases, having if, if you recognize that there's a normal range of the menstrual cycle, so in a healthy normal cycle, uh, a healthy normal menstrual cycle can be anywhere from about 24 days to about 35 days. And so that is from one period, you know, to the next, the, the, the whole time of your menstrual cycle. 
if you understand that, then if you start to have cycles that are frequently, you know, getting to that 35 day range or frequently higher than that, or very sporadic, where sometimes they're 28 and other times they're 52, if you have that understanding of like, oh, that's not normal, then you can look deeper into it. So what happens is the menstrual cycle is showing symptoms of the underlying issue. If we take the menstrual cycle seriously and recognize that it's a sign of health, then if it goes outside of the normal range and stays there or it just is more consistently outside of the normal range, then we can actually take that as an opportunity to look deeper. Um, and other things to point out, there's kind of general fluctuations, as we mentioned, stress can affect the cycle in a number of different ways. And acute stress, so having like a stressful event one day can have an effect, say delaying ovulation or something, but chronic stress can also have an effect. And um, say, for instance, having a like the second half of the cycle is supposed to be about 12 to 14 days. Many women under chronic stress or having an issue with hormone production or hormone balance might see that their luteal phase is too short, or they might see that they're having spotting before their period starts regularly, things like that. Um, and I've worked with women who have gut issues. So whether they have IBS or they have uh, SIBO or even some sort of underlying infection where you're seeing these patterns of menstrual cycle abnormalities. So for instance, uh, in a healthy cycle, you would expect to have about two to seven days of cervical mucus. Some women will notice cervical mucus for weeks. <laughs> and that's another sign. So um, I feel like that's it that kind of helps because as women, first of all, we're typically taught that the menstrual cycle is just the period <laughs> and we're not really taught it. It's like you get a period, then, you know, eventually get another one and we don't really talk about what happens in between. Uh, but when you break the cycle down into the different aspects of it, and then you start to recognize that there's within the whole thing, there's all these other parameters. Like, you know, if the period goes on for 10 days or if you don't get a period or if your period is really heavy and painful, all of these are signs of underlying issues. And as women, it's a really important and useful and helpful tool. So it's like the tip of the iceberg analogy, like we come for the birth control or we come for the, you know, to learn how to time sex. And then we discover like, holy cow, our, my cycle is giving me all this information. I had no idea. Yeah. Why aren't we taught this? I mean, this is really serious. If there's a way that we can early, detect early abnormal changes in the cervix or cervical dysplasia, as you say, then, yeah, we need to get this info out to as many people as possible. Um, because I haven't got the stats, but the stats on cervical cancer are rising significantly. There's been a campaign recently. It's probably the same in Canada and the States. Um, about those stats and and pushing for vaccinations and earlier checks or longer checks and we won't go into all of that. Maybe we it, should take a minute on it though. Yeah, okay. No, yeah, I'd love to actually. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I could let that slide. I don't know. I don't think I could do it. Lisa um, just she tackles the hard stuff. So she will talk about she's been breaking down the contraceptive pill lately and we go I'm definitely gonna bring her up on this um and talk about that but yeah please lisa well i just want to comment on that because um it's i just see a disturbing trend when i was doing my research for the book as you know um you know i was looking at does the pill increase the risk of certain cancers and it does so the pill is associated with the increased risk of cervical liver and breast cancer and it's associated with a decreased risk of endometrial uterine and ovarian cancer. And in the research, they're very quick to, to highlight the reduced risk and then saying that it's totally fine. 
Um, so there's an interesting relationship between the pill and cervical cancer. And so the fact that there's an increase in cervical cancer, people are acting, well, I don't know if it's fair for me to be like, people are acting like, but um, the message that's coming across, they're not talking about why this could possibly be. It's just, it's just rising as if it's just like, global warming or whatever like it's just this is just happening and although we know why global warming anyways but <laughs> but my point is that there is a specific connection between hormonal birth control and cervical health and what the what the research tells us is that folate is extremely important for cervical health uh it's very very interesting women who have cervical dysplasia are much more likely to be deficient in folate women who have cervical cancer again much more likely to be deficient in folate and what the research shows is that the pill depletes folate uh, along with other b vitamins it changes the way that we methyl uh, methylate and absorb certain nutrients so women who are on the pill um become deficient in folate like over time. And what the research shows is that the longer that she's on it, the more pronounced that deficiency is. And so women who are on the pill for a long period of time are more likely to develop cervical dysplasia, cervical cancer, and to die of cervical cancer, the increased uh, rate of that. And it's, it's very interesting because it's like this you know, it, it, it enhances this gradual depletion of a nutrient that is really essential for cervical health, which then predisposes her to be more likely to it. Women who are on hormonal birth control are more likely to develop a persistent HPV infection. And when you first hear that, it sounds weird because it's like, well, the pill doesn't make you more likely to catch a virus. <laughs> so what do you mean? So what it means is that when you're not on birth control, HPV is like the flu. There's over 100 different strains. And if you ever have sex with another human, you will likely come in contact to it with it, just like the flu. And so uh, the difference is that when you're not on birth control, you catch the flu and you get over it. Your immune system gets rid of it. So women who are off the pill, it's not to say that they never develop persistent HPV infections, but they're more likely to clear it on their own, whereas women who are on the pill are more likely to not be able to clear it so that it becomes persistent, it creates more damage, and it makes you more likely to develop cervical dysplasia, which is a fancy word for abnormal cells of the cervix. So with this increased campaign um, to get women vaccinated, no one's asking the question of why are women more getting more cervical dysplasia? And no one is talking about the fact that there's research evidence. Um, I've, I cited probably 200 <laughs> articles in the pill chapter. Not one chapter. Uh, there's lots of evidence. There's lots of research to show the, the role of folate in cervical health. There's lots of evidence to show the role of the pill in depleting folate, especially over time. Um, beware of the studies that say there's no link that last for three months because women don't take the pill for three months. They take it for 10 years. So look for the studies that really get into what happens when a woman is on the pill for 10 years, how that, that, how that length of time affects her folate and how that affects the cervix. So yeah, this is a big thing for me because one of the things that I have found in my practice that really surprised me is how common it is for women to have cervical dysplasia and how common it is for it to show up in the chart often before they know they have dysplasia. So often before they've gotten their official diagnosis by their doctor, 
I'm seeing this wet watery discharge, uh, you know, because we're working together, we're charting in a specific way. Uh, the way that I teach charting, we have a very detailed cervical mucus, um, just, just a detailed way to like, I always joke like everything that comes out of your vagina, we got something for it on the form. Uh, so we're able to zone in on the difference between mucus and the difference between the abnormal discharge that women experience when they have dysplasia, which is often just like, it's like your cervix is dripping with water is what it is. Yeah. And these women are always saying that they feel wet. Yeah. Some of them actually, if it's progressed far enough, are actually experiencing gushes of what feels like water. And to be honest with you, I have never really heard anybody talk about this outside of the fertility awareness world. So with charting, you can actually detect. So it's, you know, especially with the, you know, with the detailed way, you know, when you're wiping and you're looking and you're being very specific of how you're charting for mucus, you can detect the presence of uh, cervical dysplasia. Well, even sometimes before you get the positive pap, because sometimes you get false negative and all that. But like, and so yeah, this is a big this is a big issue for for women uh, to to at least know the link between cervical health and folate, and to know the role of the pill in depleting folate and the role of the pill in increasing women's risks of developing cervical cancer. Because in my opinion, the solution is to at least acknowledge that there's a link. So that women know, uh, at very minimum, like minimum, minimum, women are on the pill. They should at least be taking a multivitamin, B complex, or something. At least because if they know that, but best case scenario, maybe limiting the time on the pill and focusing on ensuring that we have sufficient nutrients so that we don't become so deficient that we end up more likely to develop dysplasia. Yeah. I will get off the soapbox now. <laughs> I'm stepping down. I'm off. Okay. Oh yeah. no, that was fantastic. <laughs> I'm glad you got on. And it's so important. It's really hard not to um like there's this fire that kind of rises up and okay, take a breath. <laughs> okay. And as you were talking, I was getting those waves. I'm like, oh but yeah. you're right. And it, the research is there. The research has been there for quite a while. And that's really what makes you or makes me and other people quite frustrated and angry is that why aren't women being informed and the research is there so much so and you put this in your book that um some companies have started putting folate into the pill <laughs> but they're so simultaneously saying, saying that the pill doesn't, doesn't folate. yes <laughs> but we're just gonna just, put it in here just in case just in case but yeah, as you said, ideal scenario. And for some women, the pill might be the right option for a time, but looking at what is a safe time, minimizing that time as much as possible, and then educating to move on to other options. And like you say, supplementing and looking at diet because there's some really high folate sources of um, food out there. And, and as much as supplements are good, it's also good to have those sources of high nutrients coming in through real foods as well, which mm -hmm. you talk about in your book. And um, yeah, so things like liver, which not everyone loves, but there's lots of other foods, eggs as well, I believe, are high in folate, and there's mm -hmm. lots of other vegetable sources too. And often, well, one thing, just to just to put it out there, because there's a difference between like maintaining and building healthy stores when you are starting from just a regular place, but then there's when you actually have a severe deficiency. So. For example, if a woman has been on the pill for 10 to 15 to 20 years, um, knowing that the pill is associated with depleting folate, B12, zinc, selenium, coenzyme Q10, magnesium, like it just goes on and on. Um, I think that 
like, yes, we need to do both. We need to make sure that we're consuming the foods that are high in these nutrients. But knowing that the pill depletes nutrients, especially that those nutrient depletions are compounded over time. Um, I think that the best case scenario would be for a woman who's coming off to get a full nutrient panel. I mean, you don't, it's not always uh, like, we don't always have to go to that level, but ideally, right? So ideally you'd be able to do that, identify the deficiencies and sometimes supplementation is required. If a woman has been slowly depleted in folate for 10 years, eating liver is going to help. But she, in order to actually like bring her back to normal, a period of supplementation for a while might be required, especially when it comes to cervical health. Uh, because what, what happens <laughs> is that if you have cervical dysplasia, and it's not addressed, then you're more likely to end up having a cervical surgery to remove the abnormal cells. And women who have procedures to remove the abnormal cells of the cervix, I mean, obviously we need to make sure that she's not going to develop cervical cancer. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't have those procedures. But I'm saying that when women do have those procedures, then often their cervical mucus production changes. It's limited because the cervix is what makes the mucus. If you cut off a piece of it, then you're less able to make the mucus at the same degree that you were making it before. And women don't know that this can affect their fertility. They just, they're not aware because, you know, so there's, there's a lot of layers to this stuff. Yeah, there is so many layers. And if people are looking at getting pap smears, which like, as you said, like they are a very useful diagnostic tool, um, but they are for prevention. So why not look at all these other aspects for prevention, and especially as a postpartum doula and thinking about postpartum nutrition? What we're seeing now is that people are having to catch up afterwards. So people are maybe, if they are going to have children, they're coming off the pill in a depleted state. Then they're going into pregnancy, which completely <laughs> depletes yep, you. Drains Most, the rest. Even yep. if you are eating well. Um, and then you're going into postpartum where if you breastfeed and you need to recover, everyone needs to recover and that's going to deplete you more. So if we are looking at other diagnostic tools like pap smears for prevention, as I said, why aren't we looking at just a nutritional um, nutrient mineral level profile for people coming off the pill um, just for general health, because it's going to prevent long-term health issues, but especially if it's someone is thinking about having children, sending them into pregnancy Instead of catching up later, so here in Australia, and you might have heard of Dr. Oscar Serilak, he's written a book called The Postpartum Depletion Cure. Um, he's a GP oh. who has observed um, how women have come to him depleted over time and the link between having children and being depleted. And yeah, so he talks about real food, but also supplementation that is needed. But why aren't we topping up people's cup first? Why aren't we going, okay, let's... And so many traditional cultures have known this. And I spoke to Lily recently. I haven't released a podcast yet, Lily, Dr. Lily Nichols, about this um, traditional pre-fertility nutrition diets. And it's the same here. Most people are depleted in a, on a modern diet anyway. So um, need some sort of supplementation and dietary changes. And if we're looking at long-term health, really, people want, the medical industry wants to save money um, and they want long-term health outcomes, then we really need to be looking at prevention from a nutritional supplementation point of view as well. Well, I mean, I come at that. That's a big topic. And again, it's, it's one of the issues that it's so important for just to raise awareness for women. Because so, you know, for women who are trying to get pregnant, 
our medical system and a lot of the advice that we get is solely focused on baby and baby's health. And that's not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Obviously, we want to have healthy babies. But when you have a baby, you are the mother. Like, you have to be present. And as a mother, myself, uh, <sighs> The, you know, I remember the doctor saying things like the baby will get what it needs and don't worry if you're deficient and all that kind of stuff. There's some truth to that. But again, focusing on baby, if the baby get what's, gets what it needs from your already depleted body, you don't have anything left. And so, um, I mean, we could just list the nutrients that are required for a healthy baby. So the micronutrients, we know about folate, but even that, I mean, the advice for folate is just to take a prenatal. and um, there's certain foods that do contain folate. Uh, we often think of green vegetables, which do contain folate, which is an important source. But, you know, the, the densest, uh, where if you were to pound for pound, where are you going to get the most folate? Well, it's actually in liver. Um, vitamin B12, vitamin D, um, iron. It, it, like, I'm barely scratching the surface here, yeah. but um, one of the studies that I looked at uh, showed that, you know, only about 20% of the women that they studied in, that they looked at in the study, had sufficient iron stores to go into pregnancy. Iron is a good example. During pregnancy, your requirement for iron goes up, and not only what you're eating every day, your actual reserves of iron have to be at a certain level. Because in addition to what you're consuming, it takes from your stores because you're building a human being and that requires a significant amount of nutrition. And so if, if you give the example of iron, if women don't have sufficient iron, it increases their risk of pregnancy complications. And uh, then once you have the baby, if you are deficient in just iron, we haven't talked about all the others, that makes it really hard for you to be present, to be a mom. It sets you up more likely to experience postpartum depression, postpartum thyroid issues. Uh, the requirements for all nutrients, all of them, go up in pregnancy. And I really appreciate, you know, that doctor for writing a book about postpartum depletion to draw attention to it. But what we also, in addition, so and, we need to be looking at um, uh, pre-pregnancy uh, care. Because as you mentioned, our diet really doesn't contain a lot of nutrition because we have we don't regularly typically consume the really high density food nutrition um, or the the foods that contain the highest density of nutrition. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, when my parents were growing up, I should say, so my dad, he grew up in the West Indies and his uncle had like a slaughterhouse and he grew up eating all the, like he would, he jokes with me and he's like, yeah, we used to eat the brain and the liver and the heart and the lungs and all this stuff that he literally grew up eating all that stuff. Um, it sounds really gross now to a lot of people when you hear them, they're just like, that is disgusting. Why do people eat that stuff? But when you look at what the research has to say about about, like when you analyze those types of foods for nutrients, um, you know, liver is the highest natural source of iron, vitamin B12, folate, choline. Um, it contains a, a decent amount of zinc, although there's more zinc in just regular red meat. Um, coenzyme Q10 is highest in liver and heart meat. And so it sounds really weird, but this is how our ancestors used to get their nutrition. And so part of the reason our diets are lacking in nutrition is because we have stopped eating a lot of those foods. Um, traditional cultures would eat a lot of fish. They would eat fish eggs. Uh, it just so happens that fish eggs are kind of like the highest density 
of omega-3 fatty acids, which are, which are essential for developing baby's brain and supporting your own brain when you have a baby. Uh, iodine is something that, you know, most of us aren't eating seaweed all the time and a lot of us don't eat a lot of fish, so we're not really getting a lot of iodine. Uh, a woman, when you, as soon as you get pregnant, you need to produce 50% more thyroid hormone because you have to produce thyroid hormone for yourself and your baby. Iodine is required to make thyroid hormone. But outside of the thyroid, iodine is essential for normal neural development. And in, in places of the world where iodine is severely deficient, children are born with severe um, mental deficiencies. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's just, these are things that as women we need to know. And so what's great, uh, if you are aware of, of these issues and you're aware that the diet is already lacking, so you take a woman whose diet is already lacking, you put her on the pill for 10 years, a pill that causes nutrient depletion, and then you, she comes off the pill and gets pregnant right away. Um, it's, yeah, this is just not the ideal scenario. So in addition to, yeah, like it's like everything we were talking about, ideally we would be screening her for nutrients, making sure she's optimizing those levels before pregnancy so that when she goes into pregnancy, she's starting with like a full tank, essentially. Absolutely. I mean, what does it say about our culture and um, mother care when it's like, oh, the baby will suck everything from you. Don't worry if you're depleted. Yeah. You it, don't need any just, nutrients for your own sanity. Don't worry about your own. It's yeah, just so, the baby. Yeah. yeah. And then, it's not like you need to take care of that baby or anything. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or continue to have other children possibly or live right? a, a healthy, wholesome life and the difference between thriving and surviving. And here in Australia, and it might be similar statistics, the leading cause of maternal death in Australia in the first year, so late postpartum, not the first six weeks, the first 12 months is suicide. So we're talking about serious oh. mental health issues. And it's part of the reason I'm so passionate about the work I do. And you can't, there's a lot of factors, obviously, um, to postpartum care, to mental health, but nutrition is a major one. And it's not being talked about. So, <laughs> but now it is, it is being talked about. It's being talked about right now. Choline is a massive one as well in eggs. Um, Lily Nichols talks about that quite a lot. And also looking at long-term um, child health. So looking at how healthy a child is physically, but also their cognitive ability, behavioural issues, those sorts of things, and how our diet impacts our DNA and um, over the generations. And talking to Lily, she was saying that we almost have a buffer zone, like um, you can have one generation that's not eating so well and our epigenetics will sort of protect us. But if you have too many generations in a row that are depleted in these really essential nutrients, and there is a long list, uh, micronutrients, macronutrients, minerals, then you're going to start to see some of the huge issues I believe we're seeing now with behavioural issues and um, lots of other genetic problems coming out but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the scientist, but I love that there's people like you and Lily and other uh, people bringing in the research. So you really like, as you said, your book is jam packed with references because the research is out there. It's just a matter of bringing it into a form that is easily accessible and makes sense to people and is easily actionable. Um, so I'm just conscious of the time and there was one aspect I really want. I feel like we could talk about food forever because I love nutrition and food. <laughs> but um, I really want to touch on some of the concepts that in your podcast, you talk with a professional doctor, Geraldine Pryor, I think it's episode 233 and two, uh, no, 55, about this uh, really amazing, delicate dance between estrogen and progesterone but also in the menstrual cycle 
the importance of having a fairly balanced follicular phase. So that's the, from after your period up to when you ovulate and then the luteal phase. So from when you ovulate to have your period. And so the first phase being more estrogen dominant, the second being progesterone and the importance on overall health when that's out of balance or the importance of it being in balance, how that impacts on long-term health. Could you share a little bit of your key insights from talking and researching with um, looking at Dr. Geraldine Pry's research? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, so we hear the word estrogen dominance a lot. And I think people often think that it means that you have just an outrageously high estrogen level or something like that. Uh, but it, it's possible to have, be estrogen dominant and have low estrogen because what that refers to is how much having too much estrogen in relation to progesterone. And so estrogen and progesterone play different roles in the menstrual cycle and in the body. And so in the first half of your menstrual cycle, as you mentioned, you know, our ovaries are producing estrogen as we approach ovulation. And in a healthy cycle, ideally you would have about, you know, that's why the average cycle is about 29 days, kind of similar to the lunar calendar. I know some people love to look at the connection between menstrual cycle and moon, but the average menstrual cycle in all the different research studies that I looked at always fell somewhere around 29 days, even though there's always a range as we talked about. And if you think about that, then we're having approximately as many days uh, of estrogen unopposed as we are with progesterone. So in the second half of the cycle is when we're making progesterone. So Estrogen and progesterone have different roles. Estrogen is more of the proliferative hormone, and that means that it's you know, associated with cell growth. So uh, in terms of your period, estrogen, after you shed your period, or after you have your period, shed your endometrial lining, it's estrogen that really you know, triggers the growth of the uterine lining and causes it to, um, causes it to grow. And uh, that's why uh, we associate too much estrogen with things like cancer, uh, because estrogen kind of unopposed is proliferative, so it causes things to grow. Progesterone has a, a different role, and in many ways, progesterone mitigates the proliferative effects of estrogen, which is really interesting. And so when I was you know, researching for the book, in the first chapter, I talk about how progesterone um, it's interesting when they study it, progesterone initially has a proliferative effect. And then um, once it like once you're exposed to progesterone for several days, like, you know, after one or two days, it really starts to support the development and maturation of the cells, which is really interesting. And so if, if you go back to the example of your uterine lining, so in the first half of your cycle, estrogen is stimulating your uterine lining to grow and develop and to, to get thicker. And then in the second half, progesterone is what directs the cells. It's what tells them what to do. Um, you know, if they're going out of control, it would you know, put that to an end, but really helps the cells to mature. And in the case of your uterine lining, progesterone in the second half of your cycle is what changes the cells, causes them to become secretory, causes your uterine lining to become uh, the home for a potential fertilized egg. So it changes the actual nature of the cells themselves to make them into what they need to be. And you can, so with Jerry Lynn Pryor's work, she's looked at the different roles of estrogen and progesterone in bone health. I was really surprised when I started looking into the role of, um, like just in terms of bone health and bone development, a lot of the research focuses only on estrogen. Uh, but when you look at the research, estrogen and progesterone have very specific roles in bone development and bone health. So as a young woman growing up, 
our menstrual cycle, having that cyclical estrogen and progesterone, it plays a key role in developing our bones and getting us to the point of what, what's called peak bone mass. So we don't get like the, the, so peak bone mass that refers to kind of like the densest fully formed mass of our bones. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but basically it's when our bones are finished growing. And that doesn't happen. It's not like you magically turn 18 and your bones are done growing. For women, we reach peak bone mass uh, as we approach our 30s. And so, and it's interesting because our menstrual cycles play a role in that because those hormones play a role in the development of bones. Uh, in terms of our breast tissue, any woman with a menstrual cycle um, has noticed that, you know, your breasts feel different at different times of the cycle. Uh, you know, some women will find that their breasts uh, feel more full or a little bit more tender after ovulation because of the effects of estrogen and progesterone. And so some researchers have gone so far to say that when women are not getting that adequate balance of estrogen and progesterone for the different effects, it puts them at a much greater risk of developing certain types of cancers namely breast cancer um, and uterine cancer, for example. Women with PCOS who typically have longer cycles, meaning they have a delayed ovulation, meaning they have a much longer period of estrogen relative to progesterone, are at an increased risk of developing uterine cancer. So, um, so yeah, the topic that you asked about, it's a very interesting topic because it, it helps us to understand, wait a minute, our menstrual cycles are a part of this whole picture. They are a part and a sign of optimal health. When the cycles are out of balance and we're not getting you know, as many days of progesterone to help to mitigate those effects of estrogen, it does have an effect on all of these different areas of our body that are absolutely, like, that are not just a reproductive system. <laughs> mm, yeah, absolutely. And it's you can see the the role and the function of estrogen and progesterone there, whereas estrogen helps to grow, so that cell proliferation helps to grow a really healthy um, placental lining and prepare the uterus for a baby. And then progesterone, I, I didn't, I must have forgotten or I hadn't remembered the part where progesterone will be prolific in the beginning, and then as your body settles in or you produce it over time, it starts to curb that proliferation or create maturation. And that makes complete sense when it comes to having a baby. So the implantation would happen. You'd still want some growth um, energy there in the placental lining, but then you want maturation. You want the baby to settle into the uterus and the placental lining well. And it does, you mentioned the moon phase and um, people that follow me hear me bang on them about this a little bit and following the moon phases. So, but it also does follow the energetic moon phases. So the estrogen is that high energy leading up to full moon. It's about growth, activity, and then the progesterone is more that maturation coming from full moon into dark moon. So there's so many links there. And I love that. I love linking the science with what can sometimes feel like energetic woo-woo. And it's actually really not. There is grounded um, reasoning behind a lot of it and linking those two together so yeah when I learned about the different energies and the role that estrogen and progesterone play in the body it really highlighted the importance of balance in life in general but balance in a woman's cycle as well and why it's so important to understand so you might even have say a 28 to 33 day cycle um, but you don't know when you're ovulating unless you're charting so you might actually be ovulating late and have a short um, luteal phase. Yeah, luteal yeah. phase. <laughs> and 
that can have impacts on someone who's trying to conceive, but it can also have long-term health impacts. So you might think you're having a fairly regular menstrual cycle length, therefore I'm going to be ovulating somewhere in the middle, and that's not always the case. So, um, and that's another reason why it's so important to know when, if you're ovulating and when, is to understand um, how you could bring that into balance, but also the potential health risks. Um, well, I think you've covered most of what I wanted to touch on really well. <laughs> and also I love in your book, you talk about the menstrual cycle as a gift and a power. And I love that in your message that you really want women to be able to fall in love with their menstrual cycle and to be able to see that as a gift and something that helps you get in touch with your body a little bit more and to use that as a barometer for when to slow down or or when you can be a little bit more active. Is there anything you'd like to say to people about that, about learning to fall in love with your body and your menstrual cycle? Well, I would say that part of this is, feels like the ultimate feminist act to reclaim your menstrual cycle. Uh, it's, if you think about it, out, if you just kind of allow yourself to, to think about why would the menstrual cycle be thought of so negatively why would the message that it's dirty and gross and there's um i refer to some of the religious practices that are still practiced where uh you know women can't touch you know if you touch somebody during your menstrual cycle they're soiled as well and all this kind of stuff like why is it so dirty every single human being on earth is here because of his or her mother's menstrual blood all of us were hanging out in the blood before we were born. So there's not one person alive that didn't, that, that isn't here because of their mother's menstrual blood. So the next time you're thinking of your period as dirty and gross or whatever, I think <laughs> it's really important to remember that because um, it's so important. So what I say in the book is if every woman stopped menstruating, there would be no next generation. So we need to get the gravity of that and like move on. Half of the, the population menstruates. So uh, we can't keep sweeping it under the rug and suppressing it with hormones, uh, especially since it's a, a really significant and important indication of our health. It's just, I, I feel like I've just had enough. There, in some ways I feel like, um, sometimes I feel, uh, if you think about how women have been treated historically, how women were, there was a, there would have been a time when if I tried to talk about this, I would have been burned at the stake. So I feel like if we think about where we are in the historical con context of all of this, uh, it's really important to recognize how important it is for us to reclaim our periods and um, reclaim our health at the same time. Yeah. And it's been an important um, sort of win recently with the Oscar winning movie. Right? Yeah. Period. <laughs> end of sentence. I don't have Netflix, so but I will I will um access it soon and watch it. Have you watched it? I haven't watched it yet, but it's but on yeah, the list. It's on my wish list. So for people that don't know, there's a Netflix movie, um, period, end of sentence, and it was an Oscar. Did they won? Didn't they? They won. They did. Award. They won yeah. an Oscar for a documentary about periods. And so this is huge. <laughs> that would not have <laughs> happened twenty years no. ago or thirty years ago. I would have loved to um, spoken to you also a little bit more about the pill and there was another topic I would have liked to talk about too, which was sperm quality. A lot of the time there's a lot of focus on women and you do have some really interesting um, knowledge around sperm quality and how important it is to look at um, for conception as well. But um, for anyone that's interested, 
there's obviously Lisa's book and her podcast. As I said, almost 250 episodes. There's so much information there. Um, so where can people find you and your book? Well, thank you so much. First of all, thank you for having oh, me. This was a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> you were asking great questions. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I feel like chill. You have this chill energy. So I was feeling very relaxed. So thank you for that. Oh, good. <laughs> the sun's just starting to rise now. <laughs> well, and I, maybe part of the reason I was so relaxed is that I'm hearing like literally the crickets chirping yes. in the background because <laughs> you're sitting outside. It's wonderful because it's snowing where I am. Yeah. <laughs> There's no crickets. I'm not hearing any crickets. I live in um, the country as well, so it's quiet, <laughs> except for the crickets. <laughs> yes, love it, love it. Um, but thank you for that. So the book is available on Amazon. It's currently available in paperback and ebook. E paperback I can't talk anymore paperback and ebook formats and I'm working on the audiobook it's take I was a podcaster so I feel like I was really cocky I was like oh this is going to be easy it wasn't easy but I'm working on it and it's almost done so I'm excited about that and for the listeners you can get the first chapter for free over at the fifth vital sign dot sorry the fifth vital sign book.com and my podcast is fertility friday so if you search in your favorite podcast player for fertility friday you will find me and um, I'm always hanging out there, releasing episodes every week for the past four years now. Yeah, every week. You're so dedicated. <laughs> I can't <laughs> stick to a routine like that. Oh, but thank you so much. It's always fascinating listening to you. And it's been an absolute pleasure to actually be able to talk with you face to face. And I look forward to following your work um, and seeing what comes of it. And I really hope that people get their hands on your book and and your information. You also run a masterclass, don't you, for people that would like to work more closely with you one-on-one -on -one in charting? I do. A couple times a year, I run like a, a live class where we go through fertility awareness A to Z. Uh, and it's, it's a lot of fun. One of the things that the women say about it is it's a rare opportunity to not only learn about your chart, but to see what happens in other women's charts, but not just like randomly online to actually have someone who has done this for a long time uh interpret the charts in in the group setting so it's it's a lot of fun we've got a, we have a lot of fun fantastic well thank you lisa thank you thanks for listening and if there was something there for you please head on over to the pollinationmamas.com webpage sign up for latest podcasts nourishing recipes blogs and much more Head on over to Anchor FM at Pollination Mamas and sign up for the podcast there or to Facebook and Instagram and say hello. But importantly, share widely with anyone you may know who would gain something from this. Thank you.